Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Sunday, the 17th from 4 to 7.30 p.m. 
at most. That's M-O-C-T. It's a bar restaurant in the third ward of Milwaukee. Uh, check it out. It's a film fundraiser for Trail of the Black Sheep, a documentary film. Uh, the other is on October 29th. It's a Friday evening at the, at the uh, Milwaukee Art Museum. In their auditorium is uh, the premiere of a feature film called Port of Call. It's a multidimensional comedy directed by Glenn Popple. Now, I don't mention those films just because I happen to be in both of them. I mention them because those uh, people requested that I spread the word, and I'm always happy to spread the word about upcoming events. So if you know something happening before I do or you send me some information, I'll try and get it up either on the air or on the website. Well, without any further ado, let me bring on my guest, Mr. Richard Chisholm, and uh, and let's discuss with him uh, what he does. Richard, are you there? I am. All right. Well, it sounds like we're live and we're going uh, well today. So, you know, I, I mentioned that you've been in the business about 25 or 30 years now, and uh, you've done a variety of different things. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how you got involved in in uh, the filmmaking that you do and um, and maybe some of the uh, programs or shows that you've been involved with? Right. Uh, so in my case, I was like an artist child uh and i drew and paint and things like that and when i was a teenager about age 15 i sort of picked up a super 8 movie camera and stopped drawing and painting and started making films with my friends it was all for fun and uh one thing led to another got more serious we started editing little funny films we were making and a local film festival had a showing of one of our films and something kind of clicked and i ended up going to university of maryland a big uh film department at the University of Maryland, majoring in film, teaching there, working in the film department, and also starting freelancing as a production assistant and camera assistant while being a student. And so I got a very early kind of precocious start. I was very driven and ambitious about filmmaking. And uh, while I was a student at the university, I also started making films, often documentaries, and, and but also freelancing and working on other movies and commercials and things. So, uh, and then in the early 80s, when I uh, left the university, I started freelancing and sort of never looked back. I've been doing that, uh, I guess, about 30 years, and stitching together a living as a freelance cameraman uh, means that, for me at least, I've chosen to sort of embrace variety. I work on feature films and commercials, and but mostly documentaries because I like them the most, uh, and sometimes I work as a as a DP and other times as a camera operator, and those things, of course, mean different things in different fields. But uh, I kind of like the variety, and sometimes the jobs are a day long, and sometimes they're weeks or months long. And because I'm in the mid-Atlantic region, I end up working on feature films or TV shows that come to this region uh, as a camera operator. For instance, things like uh, a TV series, Homicide, or the newer HBO series, The Wire. I worked as a camera operator on those things, and and sometimes feature films, but mostly documentary work, some of it very prestigious for National Geographic, Discovery, PBS, and BBC, and other times, you know, very independent kind of films um, that aren't even for television. So it's a wide variety of stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Richard, because I have listeners that are uh, A-list listeners, seasoned filmmakers, all the way down to uh, newbies, people who are picking up a camera for the first time acting or directing their first feature or, or being hired as a makeup artist or a gaffer or a grip, um, uh, 
and everyone in between. I also have a lot of listeners who are simply fans. They've never been involved in filmmaking, nor do they necessarily wish to, uh, but they like listening to the behind-the-scenes uh, talk that uh, we provide here on MovieBeat. Uh, so could you uh, delineate, di- differentiate between the different titles um, there's cinematographer, camera operator, uh, first assistant camera, the, di- the different designations that, that there are um, for all of my listeners? Sure. Uh, to some degree, it doesn't make much difference. I think of all these words as being synonyms uh, for me, director of photography, director of photography, cinematographer, a camera person, videographer, camera operator. These things can sort of mean the same thing. The difference uh, can be more pronounced, however, when you're in an industrial setting, like a you know sort of Hollywood or big league film feature film production. And there, really, it's more like a military delineation. There's director of photography, and then under that person, there's camera operators, and there's assistant camera operators. And all those things have a meaning. The director of photography in that setting is the person who is sort of in charge of an entire department, who uh, makes huge aesthetic decisions with the director, who's responsible for the look of a movie. Uh, but, you know, if you switch categories to documentaries or, you know, some other kinds of filmmaking, uh, there's usually not so much of a hierarchy and the cameraman is a cameraman kind of thing. Uh, so so I, depending on what category and who you're working for, these things either matter or they don't. All right. So what does the, the DP do uh, that the first camera operator, that the camera operator doesn't, or what does the focus puller actually do? And uh, maybe, you know, the second camera assistant, can you can you kind right. of... So, in that in that sort of feature, big league feature filmmaking uh, uh, kind of hierarchy, the director of photography uh, is is highly responsible for the look of the film and deciding how to shoot and what equipment to use, and is working very closely with the director and sometimes the writer and art director. And camera operator in that setting is a person behind the camera who is more of uh, just what it says, an operator of the camera. They usually don't get involved in conversations about aesthetics. They usually don't have decision power about uh, where to shoot, when to shoot. The operator usually takes command or takes advice from the the DP and uh, is really in charge of operating this camera, moving the camera, uh, composing nicely these images, making sure that, uh, you know, everything goes well with the camera itself. And then there's assistants. There's focus pullers, first assistant, camera people, incredibly important and difficult job judging the amount of foot uh, you know the distance in front of the camera to say an actor's or an actress's eyes as they move around a room and it's a very highly skilled technical kind of job and then there's second assistants who load magazines and do a whole bunch of little things to help the camera department uh, often you know clapping the slate keeping track of notes changing lenses that sort of thing so in a big camera department everybody's got their job very very delineated Absolutely, and then there are those who who travel with a camera on their on their under their arm or on their shoulder, and they're they're all by themselves. Yeah, so on you know on other kinds of jobs, for instance, documentaries, which are often very low budget and often very small crew, either for by necessity or because uh, it's actually advantageous to have a small crew. Uh, on those shoots, uh, you know, it's often just me, just a camera person, um, a sound person, and you know, working with a producer or director. So it can be as small as two or three people or maybe five or six people if you add a couple of assistants or something. So documentary film work, there's usually just one camera person that represents that whole department. 
uh, and you know I find that exhilarating. It's a lot harder, uh, and but it's also more to me closer to the filmmaking craft than to be in a hierarchy uh, doing only one particular you know category of work. But I do uh-huh. like the variety. I enjoy changing up uh, because one thing informs the other. I think in my case it's always been uh, advantageous to switch back and forth between. Uh, you know, feature film and commercial work and documentary work. Even though documentary is where my heart is, the other things are are, are very important uh, craft-wise and sort of help me keep stay on my toes. Well, would you uh, would you list some of the different? Uh, well, you've been done a lot of different television, for example, and and could you would you list some of the um, the shows that you do uh, on TV? Uh, yeah, I mean it's. I don't know where to start because I've had a lot of. I mean, I've had the privilege of working on lots of, you know, kind of prestigious shows, National Geographic series and specials. I worked uh, twice on a series for ABC Television, on a medical series, documentary series called Hopkins. The first one was called Hopkins 24/7, 12 years ago, and two years ago another six-part series on the same network was just called Hopkins. And what that was was, uh, you know, uh, a really in-depth kind of six-hour series about real life of doctors, nurses, and patients uh, in a hospital setting. And it was like, you know, four months of shooting and months of editing, which I don't do, but it was took months of editing to uh, to scale down the whole story. And, uh, th- you know, those are, those are things that I just love doing. I love working with real people and real situations. Uh, and I find that there's a, there's a weird challenge to that that other kinds of filmmaking, uh, you know, don't really have. And I just enjoy the engaging in real life. So that's something. Uh, and also recently, I, for the last two years, I've worked on my own film, which is unusual. I've directed and shot a film with a co-producer and with an editor. And uh, that's called Cafeteria Man. It's a feature film about school food reform. And it's about a genius chef that came to Baltimore to try to shake up uh, the school food system in the city. And while we were making the film for two years, this guy, Tony, became sort of nationally famous, and uh, it, what started locally ends up being sort of a national um, movement, uh, you know, going to the White House, consulting all over the country. So our film kind of chronicles this guy. And it also is, is very much a documentary with no staging or, or, you know, the story evolved as it was, and we were just there to film it for two years. And that film just got finished. It will be released in the spring of 2011. It's going to festivals right now and things like that. So that's uh, I'm very excited about that because it's unusual for me to to you know make a film to direct a film especially a feature length one. It's the first time I've ever tried that. Let me ask: Do you have a website or anything devoted to uh, the film that you can share with listeners? Yeah, I have a website with my name, RichardChisholm.com, which is kind of a bi- biographical thing. But also there's a, a website that we're working on right now for Cafeteria Man, which is just CafeteriaMan.com, uh, and it's in it's in construction right now. It's not fully uh, presentable, but uh, we're working on it in the next few weeks. So by the time the film premieres uh, in 2011, it'll be an interactive website with information about screenings and literature related to the film and educational outreach and things like that. Uh, so much of our conversation, I mean, because you do so many things, you do commercials and you do documentaries and you do television and you do, uh, you know, feature film work and you do have done episodic television, not just documentary television, and then you've done documentary television and documentary features and then you've directed it. I mean, you've done so much. Um, you know, we may end up uh, asking you, you know, to... Um, uh, 
a question, for example, you know, how do you work with a director? Well, that may differ from uh, venue to venue or genre to genre or, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and you may just want to wish and say, or not wish, but you may want to say, well, when, when I'm working with a documentary director, here's what happens. And when I'm working with a feature director or a TV director, here's what happens. Um, so, you, you know, a, feel... I mean, it's a huge challenge, actually. Um, most people in film and video work, I think most people that I can tell are more specialized especially in L.A. and New York and bigger cities, there's there's a marketplace that, you know, you are, let's say you're a cinematographer and you shoot, you know, children or you shoot commercials or you shoot only documentaries or you shoot wildlife or you're a camera operator only or you're a camera assistant only. And I think this specialty makes sense in our industry because you can get very good at something and you stick with it and your reputation's built around that one category. I have, um, I don't know whether it's because I chose or because it chose me, but I have always embraced this idea of being able to do different things within the realm of camera work and, and cinematography. Uh, I'm now kind of addicted to it, and when I say that, I mean if I do any one thing for a month or two straight, I get very antsy. I start feeling very claustrophobic. Even if it's a documentary, a particular project, I sometimes have this desire to get a break from it, and I've been privileged in this freelance career to have the phone ring and the break occurs. I mean, somebody calls and says, oh, I have a shoot next Thursday, and it's, you know, going into a coal mine on a documentary about a woman coal miner, you know, and then the next week it's like a commercial for, you know, some, a car company or something, and the next week after that it's some, you know, job overseas that's, that's you know, fascinating about people and places, and, and I, I find this kind of stimulating, this idea of not knowing what I'm doing next. It's financially uh, not very stable at times. There's times right. weeks weeks go by when the phone doesn't ring, and it's harder to pay bills. But I've been pretty lucky in the last, let's say, 20 years of having just a word of mouth reputation that builds on itself. Um, you know, when I first got started, I was always like calling producers and saying, you know, hey, what do you have going? Or I'm this and I'm that. Here's my resume. And I I haven't done that in a couple of decades. I mean, I'm listed on some rosters and things like that. But it's really a word of mouth industry and you know, your relationships with people kind of determine how you're going to survive in the freelance community, in my opinion. And so Absolutely. making those relationships work is really important, which gets back to your question. On days when I work on a feature film, I can actually be fired for raising my hand and saying to a director, uh, you know, I think this would look better if we shot it over here. Uh, so it's like a military thing where, you know, Sergeant can't say something in front of a captain. You know, there's a there's a protocol, there's etiquette, and so I have to keep it straight. If I'm working on a feature film or a commercial with some, you know, very demanding director, I I have to know what the rules are. And then you know, the next time I'm on a shoot, a couple days later, I'm on a documentary, and the producer I'm working for has no opinion about how to shoot something and looks at me and says, Richard, what do you want to do next? So I'm I'm allowed to say and choose and pick and decide all kinds of things on those days. But if I get mixed up, I get in trouble. Because if I go on a shoot where the rules are, you know, stay to yourself and just do this one thing, and, you know, I have to sort of grit my teeth and, you know, keep my mouth shut if I have a different opinion. And then on other days, I have to very energetically apply everything I know to make to make the shoot work, almost as a surrogate director sometimes. And I enjoy that, but it's very tricky. One One has to keep alert as to what, you know, who's buttering your toast this particular day, who you're working for. 
<laughs> is there any? How do you know which is which? I mean, is, is it an unspoken kind of? Uh, I think uh, it's like the, you know, the serenity prayer or something. You know, knowing <laughs> knowing what you can change, uh, you know, and knowing what you can't change, and knowing what the difference is. I mean, I go on shoots sometimes for the first time. I'm often working with producers I've never worked with before. So it's a brand new call comes in. I got your name from so and so. I have a shoot next week. You know, my name is such and such. Never worked with this person before. So I arrive on location after some conversations and emails about what equipment and what the show is about. I arrive on location not exactly knowing the chemistry of the relationship that's going to ensue, and I have to quickly sniff it out. If I find that the person has this very insecure ego and that they're directing this thing and they have a storyboard and they want it shot a certain way, I can sense, usually within a few minutes or an hour, that this person does not want my input. And that if I do offer input, it can be very threatening and they can be very, you know, pissy or argumentative. So if I sniff out that this person is very touchy and insecure and has their own little way of making it, and it might be somebody, you know, who's 24 years old directing me and I have much more experience and they may not want to hear about what I think and I have to respect that. They're paying me to work with them. Uh, and then other days, a 24-year-old, you know, producer will hire me and come to me right away and say, I'd like to do this, but what do you think? He thinks there's a better way to shoot this. And I'm always happy then because I can just very politely say, well, yeah, you know, your your idea might work, but if we come over here, we can maybe make it look even better. And that person thanks me at the end of the day. Thank you for bringing your experience and helping me make a better film. I mean, those are the people we like, the directors and producers who are not so egotistical that they can't accept help when people like me offer help. But I can tell you that it's tricky because if, if they don't want the help and you offer it, you know, you don't get called back, and you know you you hurt you hurt their ego and you embarrass them in front of people or whatever. So I just I have to figure it out quickly. Now, is there much difference between working? I mean, now uh, commercials and or uh, episodic television for that matter, or documentary television. Yeah, they're all very different. I mean, just those three basic categories. Um, you know, commercial work and music videos, things like that, are very short-term and very intense and very expensive usually. So there's often lots of people around watching monitors and lots of input, lots of opinions. Uh, but there is a, a pretty definite hierarchy in commercials that, you know, that one has to to obey the rules by. And then, you know, in documentaries, it's all over the place. Documentaries could have real controlling kind of producers or could have very loose you know, production ethics. Uh, and as I said before, the feature film industry is actually the most consistent and the most industrialized one. I call it a military kind of thing because that's just an easy model. It's also like a construction site, uh, working on a feature film. Uh, because if you walk down the street and you stop and see that they're building a building and you stop and look at the construction site, you can see, if you if you just stand there, you can see that the cement guy just does cement and you can see that the electrician is just putting cable through pipes and running cables and you can see there's an architect with you know notebooks in his hand going in and out of a trailer and you can tell by looking who's doing what and you know that that cement guy can't walk into the trailer and say hey i have an idea i have an idea how to do this better you know and you can tell that the bricklayer, you know, is not going to be able to go over to the electrician and say, hey, you've got to move your pipe over here. I've got this brick line I want to put over here. It's going to look better. 
this is a very, very defined thing, a construction site. Nobody can sort of improvise. You know, another model I think of is like classical music. You know, feature films are highly organized, like a classical symphony orchestra on stage. You can't have like an oboist on a particular Thursday night decide to sort of wail into a solo or something. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's got the music in front of them, and that's the way a feature film is usually done with a very tight script and very organized structure and people yelling with walkie-talkies of who's doing what next and coordinating the thing. And I, I find that if I did that all the time, I'd, I'd be very depressed. I don't like that environment more than a month or two. But I love stepping into that environment. Uh, you know, for a short term, I think it's incredibly interesting. And I like being that bricklayer or whatever. But I don't want to do it full time. And it's very liberating for me to then switch into the documentary mode or a smaller kind of format, a filmmaking mode, where, you know, you really can improvise. And suddenly, you know, I'm a jazz musician in the analogy. Which So I, I think it's very interesting to do both things, but most people pick one or the other, I would have to say. Well, well, I'm really enjoying talking with you because I, I think it is so important. I, uh, you know, I, I tell you know the the point of Rexx Movie Beat is to be a resource for people who, at whatever level of filmmaking expertise they they uh, may be at. And when I say young filmmakers, I don't mean you know in in terms of age, but in terms right. of their experience. And and you're pointing out so many important. Uh, distinctions and the and the notion that one again people need to treat this as a business they need to treat it with respect they need to know you know what is expected of them or the decorum or the etiquette right. you know in each different uh, phase or part of the business whether it's television or feature films or documentary films and 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 overall it has to do with communication and rapport and respect and and. Uh, I just think that it's absolutely invaluable to all of us, you know, who at whatever level of filmmaking, you know, uh, experience, to hear that again and again and again and to keep that in mind. Um, You know, you're you're working as a team in whatever project you're working on, and and, uh, sometimes the the roles and the rules are very, very set, and other times they're looser. But but you have to know that when you're brought in. Or as you said, I can get fired, you know, and so... Uh, you know, we're trying to help people to to advance their careers and to work smoother and faster and more efficiently and know what to do and what not to do is what I say in the intro to the show. And so you have provided a, a, a wealth of really, really good information here uh, in, in just a very short time. So uh, I appreciate that so much. we got a question in the in the chat room. I'm going to take it out of order of any of the okay. questions that, that, that we might do, but just to uh, to be able to answer this. This is Vampire Mob, and he asks, has Richard shot with any of the DSLRs like the uh, 5D? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I have shot uh, briefly on two separate occasions with uh, the Canon 5D, the DSLR, still camera that shoots video, and there are now a few models that do this. Um, the question is a pretty open one. I can't tell from the question whether the person thinks it's a wonderful thing or a, or a <laughs> difficult thing. I can say that it's a very uh, premature tool in terms of being able to make good filmmaking. Uh, the camera came along very quickly uh, into sort of the video production field. It has an amazing resolution characteristic. It has amazing optical characteristic. That is this new this new breed of still cameras that can shoot high res video. And so from a, uh, you know, if you're making commercials, uh, it's it's a really interesting tool because for very low cost, you can shoot very high-res, beautiful images. For documentaries, it's terrible. 
the media storage time is too short. The ergonomics of the camera for hand-holding are terrible. Uh, hand-holding, even with the right sort of brackets and add-ons and aftermarket devices, is it becomes a large, cumbersome camera, ironically, which it started out being a small camera, and then with all the brackets necessary to walk around with it, it becomes uh, a ridiculous jumble of um, armature and cables. You're still getting a really great image, but it's not very practical or ergonomic to walk around and shoot a documentary with. So I think that there's great hope in this technology that I'd say in a year or two even, there's going to be you know new cameras made by Canon, Panasonic, Sony that use this same sort of platform but much better designed cameras and hopefully uh, something with a media storage that's more than you know 10 or 15 minutes because in documentary terms we need an hour or so in a camera when we're working on a documentary. We need a storage device that holds lots of time and we don't have the budget to have two or three technicians sitting around with laptops all the time, you know, transferring material. So I think it has a long way to go for the stuff that I like to do, but it's very interesting and beautiful, the images that are coming out of it. And then, of course, for feature films, uh, there's some low-budget ND feature films and TV shows that are experimenting with using DSLRs, uh, and it's more kind of, of a show-off experiment than it is a practical element um, at the moment. But I think that as as time goes on, there's you know there's going to be more better designed, um, you know, materials to make that all work. Oh, excellent, excellent answer. Richard, I need to take a short break here uh, and uh, kind of station identify and let people know who the guests are that are coming up. I I really appreciate your answers and you being here, and we'll be right back in just a moment. All right, awesome. Uh, My next guest coming up is my friend Daryl Morey. We co-starred together in Massacre at Central High. We're going to reminisce again on Monday the 18th. I hope you will join us live. Uh, Fans of Massacre at Central High uh, seem to keep clamoring for more. Sherry Candler is marketing and PR. She will come up on the 19th. Uh, Do tune in. Uh, She's a great person to listen to and to learn from. Harry Northup uh, has been a friend of mine for 35 years. He got his start with uh, Martin Scorsese. I think he appeared in the first six movies Martin Scorsese um, directed. And uh, Harry's an actor, he's been around forever, worked with Eastwood and everybody else. He's got lots of great stories. He's also a poet and an author, so uh, please tune in for him on the 21st. Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson, casting directors, author of the book A Star is Found, which I think is a must-read for all actors. Uh, I don't normally say this about a lot of books, uh, but it certainly is. They're returning on the 25th. Uva Bull, producer and director, is coming back and joining us uh, right after that on the 26th. And Lance Cowis, director, will be with us on the 28th of October. So uh, join uh, us during the rest of the month for these uh, fine guests. And uh, and then also help us spread the word. Tweet about it, Facebook it, share it, email, phone call, tell people in person. Let them know uh, how they can tune in and listen to these guests live as well as archived. And uh, I really appreciate it when you do that. And thank you so much. We're back with Mr. Richard Chisholm on RexSykes.com, the official uh, Rex Sykes Movie Beat uh, website. Uh, thanks so much, Richard, for that answer. You got a got a cool answer uh, comment in the chat room. People like it. I want to I want to go back. I mean, um, there's probably so much more we could explore along those lines, and I'm sure people have technical questions. But but we were talking prior to that question about rapport and about people and about communication. Um, there are uh, lots of technical elements, and then I think you call it the Zen of documentary. Uh, working a camera, working um, the, uh, an important aspect of documentary filmmaking is uh, 
the quick establishment of meaningful uh, of a meaningful relationship with people or creating rapport. Can you discuss that, please? Sure. Uh, I think um, this is where I may veer off from some of my colleagues in the field, and I don't do that proudly. I, I just think that I've developed a certain kind of opinion about you know, how to make good films and documentary films, and it may not be sort of a consensus in my field, uh, but it maybe it is. I have no idea. I just think that uh, there is way too much emphasis uh, on uh, craft elements and on equipment in filmmaking, especially in documentary filmmaking. And uh, I, I care very little about what camera or what lens I'm using I actually want to make the equipment as second nature as possible. Um, I think of it as like uh, the more invisible it is, the better in terms of my contact with people. Uh, I, most of the documentaries I work on are about people, about their lives and about their situations, uh, not, for instance, wildlife or different kinds of rocks. So 99% of what I do is working with people, and I think that's true for most filmmaking. And if that's the case, then I put a huge amount of value in what I do with my skills and my personality to have a relationship with people that are in front of that camera that disarms their nervousness, that makes them not think too much about you know, the filmmaking process, that tries to make them feel like I'm in the room with them, that I'm a person. I'm not just a camera person, but I'm a person first, and I happen to be holding a camera. But I do whatever I can to try to get beyond the instrument in my hand so that I have a human relationship with this person. If I'm following around someone working, I don't want them to constantly be worried about their hair or worried about how they look or what they're saying. I want them to just be able to work and feel like I'm a friendly presence. Uh, and that, I think that that is underemphasized a lot in the teaching of filmmaking. It's underemphasized when I look at you know, a, a critical you know, writing about documentary filmmaking there tends to be a lot of emphasis on the craft elements of of, of film work, um, and this this other thing, which is about relationship building and trust building, is kind of underemphasized. And I really think that the best documentary films are films where there's sort of three parties involved. There's the filmmaker party, there's the people in front of the camera, the subject, and then there's later an audience. And I think that if you separate out those three entities. The best films are ones where all three of those entities are happy, and by happy I mean they feel they feel like they're not being exploited. They feel like it's a good thing. So if an audience likes a film, the filmmaker likes it, and the person being filmed likes it, it's kind of a triple crown win. And those films tend to be richer, they tend to be smarter, and they tend to be you know much more believable. And believable counts to me. I mean, I kind of like the pure definition of documentary where it's not you know it's not something that's staging or distorting it's something that's trying to record and try to represent trying to represent reality uh, which is easier said than done and it's not possible to be totally objective so the question is what do you do with your subjectivity what parts of something are you going to show what tip of the iceberg are you going to show that's going to do justice to the whole story uh, because you're never going to get the whole story Wow, yeah, that is that's that's awesome. I want to ask this: there was um, a PBS documentary, a TV show, years ago, maybe in the seventies or eighties, that uh, was also made into a book called "The Ways of Seeing." I don't know if you're familiar with the book or not. Is that the John uh, Berger book? 
I believe, yeah. I, I was going to say I don't know the author of it. I can't remember the name of the author. I think I think you're you're correct. Which, which essentially said, you know, depending on where you place the camera, you 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 you. And uh, not that this is now a novel concept so much, but there may be people still un, uh, unfamiliar with the concept. But at that time, I think it was quite uh, groundbreaking, the notion that you manufacture news or elements by where you put the camera, what's included or what's excluded from the frame. Um, you know, you are point, you know, whereas a stage play, the eye scans all over it. You, your eye will scan all over a frame, but, uh, you know, the, the confines are different. So if I'm shooting a riot, I have, only so much I can show, you know. I mean, anyway, I don't want to go into a large, a long depth of the explanation of this book. I, I wanted to ask you in, in that um, there seems to be uh, some people who think documentary filmmaking should have this kind of fourth wall approach, where you're just as as much as is possible objective. Which, which, when I think Berger's point of view was saying you can't be objective when you hold the camera, you're always subjective. You know, the filmmaker is determining what people look at. Um, but some people think that you should just try and film what's going on and not have any involvement, any interaction, any you shouldn't be telling a story, you shouldn't be telling your version, you should be letting something unfold for the camera. Right. And then others believe now you see more, you know, Michael Moore kind of like documentaries where there's this a specific filmmaker point of view that's being told and then the footage that is shot or the pieces that are included uh, weave together to tell that story. Do you have a feeling about one or the other? Uh, do you, well, or... I, in my career, I've vacillated a little bit back and forth between thinking that the best documentary films are the most observational and uh, uh -huh. the most neutral. And, and then I've gone completely the other way and I've thought the best documentaries are ones that have strong point of view and that put their cards on the table and they tell the audience, you know, I, the filmmaker, am out to make this look good and this look bad. Uh, and so I've gone back and forth. I can say as a cinematographer I have to be, once again, careful because on a certain project I have to figure out which, if I'm working for a producer of the documentary director, I want to figure out right away which kind of person they are. If they want to be observational and very purist and just film what's going on, I say, great, that's kind of the most interesting work to me, where you don't, you know, you don't ask the fisherman to please uh, get off his boat again and walk down the plank again so I can get a different angle of him walking down the plank. Uh, you know, you, you simply are there with your camera, and if you miss a shot, you miss it, and you don't ask somebody to do it again, and you get what you get. Uh, I, I find that to be the most pure and the most interesting film work, and then, of course, you have the struggle of editing to make to make that all come together. I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. I don't think one kind of documentary film is better than the other. I think there's room for everybody. And I think there's value in strong points of view in filmmaking, and I think there's you know, incredible value in the sort of more observational style. But again, there is no such thing as uh, you know, pure objectivity. And the, the way you hold the camera, the amount of seconds you have the camera on and off, the height of the camera, the composition, the lens you choose, the lighting you do or don't do, whether something's in focus, whether the camera's moving, whether the sound is one way or another, all those things contribute to the way that material gets presented. And the way it gets presented determines how people look at it and how they feel about it. So there's a lot more kind of ramification in every single piece that you shoot than you might think. It's not simply like, let's just turn on the camera and see what happens. There's all kinds of things you're deciding uh, that are going to determine how it's represented. 
But having said that, I think there's a way to construct a documentary that does justice to a reality that gives um, the most unobtrusive look at what's actually happening without, you know, adulterating the situation. Well, I, I think we tend to think, I think people think, you know, and maybe I'm, Maybe I'm wrong, but I think when we think documentary, like what we grew up at school, uh, and maybe filmmaking was done somewhat differently. I mean, the first one I remember seeing, I think I was, I mean, that I remember seeing that had made a huge impact on me was Nanica the North, and I think I might have been in seventh grade right. uh, at the time. And, you know, we were looking at this guy in, in, in the North, you know, trying to survive, and then finding out that he died sometime shortly after the documentary was made. I mean, it was really... Uh, for me, it was a powerful, powerful experience. Right. But I guess I assume that, you know, you're not manufacturing a story. I mean, that's how I looked at it. I thought, you know, that documentaries where you were just filming stuff. But then, but now I know you edit, you do, you do make decisions all the time. And, and, and so you can't not manufacture a story, but right. in some way. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, right. you're, there's, uh, there's a huge spectrum that's out there. If you look at the right. history of nonfiction filmmaking, uh, Frederick Wiseman, uh, who's been making sort of PBS long-form documentaries since the 60s and is still at it, uh, he represents a really uh, important kind of mark on the spectrum. He represents a type of filmmaking that is very unobtrusive. There's no narrator. There's no music. There's no, uh, you know, strong-willed kind of control over subject. And if he's on one side of the spectrum, you know, you can pick any reality show or any fake documentary or these days any Discovery Channel documentary almost that's very controlled and scripted and everything's lit. Yeah. It's made to look real at times and that's where the that's where the sort of trick is and people might look at it and say, oh, this is all real. It's amazing. They were there to see this happen. But so much of it's recreated and uh, you know, right. there's no longer tell us what's recreated and what's not. There was a period 10 or 15 years ago where if you and I were looking at TV and there was a recreation of a scene in a documentary that wasn't actuality. There was a thing that came up on the screen saying recreation. Right, right. And somewhere along the line, that just drifted away. So, And it happily drifted away for the producers of the material because now they could completely control and, and reframe things and ask the doctor to put on a different costume and pretend it was two years ago when he did the operation and and you know, walk out and pull off his mask and act unhappy. And you know, you can shoot it and look, make it look like it just happened. Uh, but no longer is there a recreation coming up on the screen in a little letter. So, I think it's a trickier time now for audiences to figure out what's real and what's not. But Wiseman provides a great example. And the example you used about Nanook of the North, Robert Flaherty's, you know, old old film about these, uh, you know, Eskimo fur people. They, that turns out to be very, very faked. Uh, because yeah. he actually shot a bunch of material of those people, and he lost the film, and he had to go back, and he had to sort of stage things, and he had these people using spears uh, instead of rifles uh, because it looked cool and it was Better, more historical. Right. And you know, so that's even though that kind of looked good and was you know, frighteningly real to people, it was actually uh, a very controlled kind of documentary. So documentary is a big, huge category, and I have to sort of swim around and and shoot different kinds of documentaries and it's very interesting to me how you know different people make these films and and what they care about in terms of veracity some producers don't give a damn about what's real or not they just want they want to deliver a really compelling film and if they fake everything they're totally happy and then other producers are constantly trying to struggle not to fake things you know let's be here when he actually does it let's just 
let's get this woman's actual, you know, speech. Let's get these people's emotions that they're in right now today. Let's not fake it. Let's not ask them to do things again. So it's all over the place. Yeah, it's kind of amazing because, I, I, again, I go back to the notion that I used to think, well, I, when I was a kid, I used to think, well, if you put it in a book, because there were fact checkers and there were, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of attorneys, you know, behind, you know, publishing companies and everything, making sure that the facts were represented correctly and you didn't misstate things and you didn't open up yourself to, to slander or libel or, you know, blah, blah, blah. That, that you know, I used to, I, as a teenager growing up, I used to think that if it was in a book, it was true. It had to be. You know, you couldn't make false claims. You couldn't make, you know, you couldn't deliberately mislead. Well, I, I le- sorrowfully learned that that just isn't the case. Uh, and whether it ever was, I'm not sure. But but the same thing with documentary filmmaking. I think a lot of us think it's a documentary. It is supposed to be a, a, a filmatic representation of actual events, even if they are recreated. You're not you're not supposed to take the liberties at at, at fictionalizing and, and fantasizing. And it's it's hard to know now. I mean, even things like Alien Encounter or whatever the one was, where they made this kind of documentary about the the uh, Roswell the alien autopsy. That's what it was. You know, it's it's it's. I don't even know if you put it in the, in the terms of mockumentary because mm-hmm. it was passed off as something that was supposed to be true. You know what I mean? It, it right. wasn't. They didn't come out and say, "Hey, this is a piece of fiction. We're we're, you know, we're pulling your leg." So it's a it's a it's a tricky it's tricky now, I guess, for viewers. I mean, they really have to kind of be intelligent. Well, I mean, for, and, and what you're saying points up the importance of education in a culture. Uh, right. For 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 whatever reason, and it gets very political to discuss it any further. But sure. for whatever reason, our culture has been dumbed down in the last 20 or 30 years to the extent that they, you know, are not sure what to believe anymore. They don't right. vote very well because they're not really informed very much. The media is now controlled so much commercially that uh, commercial interests and entertainment interests are now dictating, you know, how news and how documentary programming gets made and how it gets right. funded. So, you know, we're living in a time where, you know, you can't believe anything you read. You can't believe anything you see. And that's why you have to be smart. And being smart means not just taking things at face value, but actually learning, which is why, you know, what you're doing is trying to to unpack the filmmaking process uh, is important and why people should learn. They don't have to go to film school necessarily, but I think it's important for every citizen to be skeptical of what they see on TV because TV no longer is, you know, is uh, uh, very trustworthy. Where it might have been in the 60s, you could look at 60 Minutes or you could read Time Magazine and you could feel like this was some kind of truth, this was some kind of reporting. Well, now those very things are not any longer trustworthy. These things are controlled by corporations that have extremely strong vested interests, and but they're still packaging it as if it's all true. Right, right. So I think, uh, you know, as a citizen, not as a filmmaker, but as a citizen, I think, you know, we have to be really, I have to be really careful about, you know, where the truth lies and really careful about who's packaging what message uh, because the interests now are so market-driven that you can't simply sit back and trust things the way you could maybe, you know, a couple decades ago. And in a weird roundabout way, that informs one reason why I like to work on good documentary films because I think there's still a place, and I think there's smart people in our culture. I don't know whether it's sort of a middle-class thing or a working-class thing or it's affluent people, but there's a lot of people now who are rising above this kind of docility, and they're looking for, you know, information through documentaries or through literature 
that is actually more meaningful and more truth, you know, has more truth in it. And they are becoming more skeptical. And so that gives me some hope. Well, that's cool. I mean, and, and I meet, I, I don't want to say every day, but I meet numerous uh, documentary filmmakers who are covering a subject, and they really are fascinated with the subject. I mean, they're, they're like, you know, here's this tribe, you know, living on this remote island, and, and we just really want to go and look at it. And this is the challenge that they face with what's going on in the environment, whether the water is rising or the, the food stores are diminishing or something. And and they're they're saying, you know, the world needs to know about these people. And, and, and I mean, I, I listen to them, and I sit down, and I'm absolutely intrigued because they are—they seem to be driven by accurately portraying a story. Right. And what you what you have said so much about the media, you know, it's just so sadly true today. Yeah, I mean, it, the the example that you're just using hypothetically about some tribe right. in Africa and some interesting cultural subject—that used to be in the 1970s what National Geographic made films about. Mm-hmm. And they were really good films. And that used to be what PBS independent AFI sponsored, you know, documentaries were about. And the Germans and the British are still making those films. But what we're doing in the United States is everything's packaged in these television, you know, right. commercial interests. National Geographic is now commercial. Discovery Channel's always been commercial. And so those tribes aren't getting films made about them anymore. And if they are, they're done in some kind of wacky entertainment way with people, you know, uh uh, uh sensationalizing uh, those subjects and and it's sad. I mean, Fox owns half of National Geographic or something. There's like all these corporate controls of what used to be sort of documentary, you know, outlets are a little bit frightening. Well, I mean, it was said that not that many years ago there was something like 55 different media outlets, and now there's five. You know, and that that Murdoch owns you know four of them or something like. That. I mean, you know, so yeah, it's changed. I I will use an analogy that may or may not make people happy. You know, MTV started as a non-commercial. Uh, a venture, you know, where they weren't going to run commercials, they were just going to show a video. But the moment they went commercial, suddenly they couldn't show the really avant-garde kind of cutting-edge stuff. They had to kind of become more mainstream. And uh, and then MTV evolved. If MTV had been around when I was a teenager, as it is today, I would have loved it. I would have spent all my times time watching MTV because all it's about is getting laid, smoking, drinking, partying, living in a house with a bunch of you know co-eds and stuff like that. And yet now I'm a parent with young children. <laughs> I go, how can they have that on the air? You know, and I don't know if it's just me getting older and looking back and going, you know, you know, it should have been around when I was young. But but it really has changed, and, it, and it's driven commercially, and it has nothing to do with with anything other than how do we attract viewers to 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 see this so that the the advertisers are happy. Exactly. And, yeah, I think uh, there's always been elements of that. I mean, you know, commercial television has always been delivering audience members to products. Uh, and trying to make them not feel that that's being done, trying to make them feel like they're being delivered shows, but actually, you know, the reverse has always been the case. It's just that in the old days there was, you know, higher production value and more thoughtfulness, and a more of a cohesive society that was, you know, all looking at the same shows every every day on television and having something to talk about the next day. So now it's so decentralized and, you know, completely commercialized, unabashedly commercialized that, you know, there's there's not much chance for enrichment. Uh, there's right. plenty of chance for entertainment and sensationalism, but uh, what is the value of that after a certain point? I'm not sure. Well, and the news is now entertainment-driven as opposed to fact-driven. So, you know, it, 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 
it follows suit with everything else. Uh, this is fascinating, in, and we have so much more to discuss. I want to tell the listeners right now that, that you have agreed to come back at another time. We're going to have you back because there is a ton of stuff to, for us to continue to talk about, uh, both technical, you know, the technical side of documentary filmmaking and filmmaking and the relational side. Um, you know, and we are currently in this discussion, but I, I just want to to say that you know the I think the other thing that has come along and obscured it is just the notion of, and even though we some of us seem to be tiring of it, this notion of reality television, the fact that it's called reality as opposed to you know prefabricated, manufactured, right. uh, you know. Uh, stuff that you're supposed to think is real. <laughs> it's right. like the recreated shows you were talking about before, you know, we, we you know, it's done kind of pseudo documentary style. We're going to travel, you know, we're going to travel with this family or we're going right. to throw a camera in this house and 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 see how they interact. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's in a very unusual time. So, let me go back because we have maybe about um 12 or 13 minutes, maybe maybe you and I actually, maybe about 11 or so minutes. Um, but let me go back because it was an important thing, and, and I should also check with the chat room. But um, uh, the notion of what we talked about before, the zen of it, uh, creating these relationships, how do, you, how do you, what do you do to create a, a relationship with a subject or subjects in documentaries? How do you, how do you uh, bridge that gap so... Yeah, I mean, uh, I wish I could say there was a formula, and then you know somebody could take notes and we could all do it. But I don't think it's formulaic. It's something where, uh, you know, it's a psychological um, uh, game or trans, uh, transaction that occurs between somebody with a camera, some film crew visiting a person for a day or for a week or whatever. And I just kind of honor. I, I start with the feeling of honoring the people for uh, not necessarily being comfortable. I also try to tell myself constantly that it's a privilege for me to be in their house, in their hospital room, in their car, whatever. It's a privilege. I'm an invited guest. It is not my entitlement to extract footage from their life. It's it's a privilege, and it's something that, for whatever reason, has been set up in such a way that they have granted permission for me to be there, to be there as a person and to be there as a camera person, both. And if you constantly remind yourself of the sort of uh, the sacred privilege of that, then it puts you in your place because you as a filmmaker, as a camera person, really have to be careful and have to be sensitive and have to be nice to the people around you and not just to them but to their little kids and to their dog and to their grandfather, anyone around them. You know, you're, you're an invited guest and you should act that way and you should think of your relationship starting on that footing. And then try to show some kind of respect and try to show people who you are so that you're not some anonymous, quiet person behind a camera. That can be very off-putting to some people. Uh, and just being civil. And some people want to talk to you and some people don't. And honoring which that is is part of the part of the challenge. Um, and I also just think it's um, to try to play down the uh, excitement of, you know, hey, you're being filmed today. You know, this is going to be seen by millions of people. I no longer say anything like that. Uh, I might have done that early on because I was so excited about it. I might have said to people, you know, oh, we really, we really want to get you walking your dog, you know, because it's going to be shown by so many people and it's going to be so great, you know. I would, I no longer use language that tries to ramp up the excitement. I actually try to sort of pipe down and make it seem very relaxed. I find that if if a film director, producer, a camera person, sound person 
if a film crew goes into a real-life situation and they exude a feeling of being relaxed, that it is contagious, and the people in front of the camera will chill and relax. And the opposite is true. If you come whipping into town, sorry I'm late, we have a lot of shots to do, I need to get you up on this ladder right away, I need to get a shot of you doing that thing you do. If you come in with this pushy attitude and this feeling of being rushed, and if you interview people like that, it all backfires on you because people get very uptight, the relationship's not very centered, it's not very nice, people don't want you around, they can't wait for you to leave. And I sense it all the time. I'm in that situation. It can be very embarrassing. Some producers being really obnoxious and entitled, and I'm you know, standing around with a camera feeling like, Jesus, I can't compensate for this enough because this person's really off-put by this attitude of entitlement, and I try very carefully to disarm it a little bit but sometimes it's you know it's beyond me so i just think those things are really really important and of course you want to try to get your lights up and you're going to get good sound and get shots and you want to you know do all the craft elements but to put that in the to put that in a more invisible realm so people don't know you're doing that and thinking about that is probably the best thing to do and it just varies from person to person some people you know, they're totally comfortable, you know, changing things and doing things differently or or having a film crew with them today. And other people are very, very nervous. So just being able to figure out which is which and to apply human skills rather than filmmaker skills to building a relationship, I think that's where, you know, that's where it works best. Uh, that's, that's really cool. And uh, just what a wonderful over overall guiding principle, you know, to that kind of wearing that thinking cap that this is a sacred privilege and, you know, and, and uh, all that you said uh, to treat people with respect and to to ensure that they're treated with the utmost regard. I, I think that is absolutely marvelous. Yeah, um, and it's not always easy to do because you might be kind of jaded or you might have seen this kind of person ten times before and you might think you know how they are. But it's best for you to not have those expectations and for you to take it as a first day. And I don't know. I think that kind of humility on the part of the filmmaker is worth a lot. And it actually yields better openness and access to real life. I think you get further faster when you uh, treat people right and you do things nicely. Now, there may be times, too, though, that your subject is cantankerous or a pain in the butt or... You know, I mean, they may not be the nicest people either, but that doesn't mean that you, know, you treat them that, you know. There's a platinum rule. The golden right. rule is treat others the way you want to be treated. Uh, but the platinum rule says treat others the way they would like to be treated. And and most people want to be treated well. So mm-hmm. find out how they want to be treated and, and, and treat them nicely. Uh, I have another question in the chat room, and, and that we only have a few minutes left. But um, it, is, it is an interesting question, and people are really, i got to tell you, Richard, people are really enjoying um, the information that you're sharing uh, and uh, are very happy you're here and pleased that you're going to come back. Uh, but the question is, is this, or I should say, and the question is, is this, with the net and crowdsourcing, does uh, indie doc, documentary filmmaking have uh, more of an opportunity to tell the truth, do you think? I guess is what they're saying. Now that now that people might be able to raise their own funds, take it out of, uh, I, I suppose it still depends on where it's being aired, but I, mean, I want to let you answer that. Um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, if the question is, does the new, the new era we live in open up access to documentary filmmaking and have more voices, you know, making more films, I think the answer is, you know, uh, obvious yes. And, then, and you know, media has become democratized. These cameras are less expensive. There's many more ways to get work shown. 
than there ever was. So on the one hand, there's an open door to new voices and new you know products to be shown. On the other hand, it's really hard to get funding uh, for for those kinds of things that are so decentralized. Like anyone can pick up a camera and make a film. Anyone can upload it onto YouTube. But how many people are actually going to see that? What difference is it going to make? Or how many people is it going to reach? And how is the person making it going to make any money? So I think there's a bunch of unanswered questions with the Internet vis-a-vis you know, movie exhibition uh, that are going to have to be answered in the next few years, and it's an evolving answer. But I do think there's there's a greater chance to get away from commercial media in order to have really strong you know films made. And then the challenge is how do we all look at those films without having to do a dance with a big commercial network, uh, which is what we wanted to avoid to begin with. So I think it's a real challenge, and I don't have the answers, but I think the questions are really worth asking over and over again. Well, it does seem that documentary feature films are more popular and there may be more avenues for them. Yeah, there's a, there's a heyday right now of documentary films and there's lots of festivals that are showing them and it's pretty much outside of television, which is great because television you know, pretty much uh, ruined the documentary in terms of its corporate model. And documentaries on television used to be terrific and then when they became less public and more commercial, you know, they took a, they took a nosedive in terms of meaningfulness. So I think that independent documentaries now have have you know uh, have some kind of excitement, and if we can find out ways to have the public see them, then I think you know the, the circle is uh, is all connected. And 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 that is all good, and yet the domain of documentary still is television. Well, I mean, to to a less extent than it used to be. Yeah, uh, I yeah. mean, the formula documentaries like on Discovery or History Channel, the answer is yes. Those are those are documentaries that are infested in television, not right, right. But in, if you're talking about really good documentaries that are right. independent and interesting and creative and innovative, you know, it's hard to find them on television. I would say. Right, but I, I yeah, and what I meant was that the the TV seems to be still the place where most what you would call the documentary art form is 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 seen you know we you know but more and more of it is happening in theaters and more and more of it may even be happening on cable right um, which i think is which is interesting but no you have raised so many fascinating points and so many just uh, you know awesome um thoughts for us to you know think about and consider and 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 how this uh you know important um medium is is changing or the media is changing uh, somebody made the comment, and we uh, we uh, we'll go a little bit long here today. But somebody made the comment, and then I want to I want to ask you uh, more about uh, Cafeteria Man. But um, somebody made the comment on the news not that long ago regarding um, they said you know uh, the media is the gatekeepers, the media is is in control. They uh, you know we see what they want us to see. And and this person made the comment not in not in in direct opposition to that, but made the comment, which I thought was actually quite interesting. He said, "You know, we're not in control anymore. I mean, certainly they are in terms of you know the dollar shares and all that kind of stuff." But he said, "We're not in control anymore. Anyone right now can use a cell phone, you know, and put it on the internet." And it came about about the, the sadly the young guy who was 
you know, cell phone or videotaped webcammed in his in his apartment, you know, with his roommate kind of thing. They said anybody can do anything at any time right now and get it on the internet. In other words, people now are the media. You know, we are the big media, but people now have a voice. They can get anything at any time, you know, anywhere, and 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 have an outlet for it. And so. You know, the time has changed, mm-hmm. which I, I think is an interesting, and I, I do think to, to some extent that that is absolutely accurate, and I think it's dangerous. I think there's all sorts of, you know, good and bad things to it, uh, but I, I, I just throw that out there. It's not documentary filmmaking, but it, it has the comment about the media. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is a really open question, and uh, again, to be able to go shoot something uh, quickly today and inexpensively, and then to upload it, you know, almost instantly, edit it at your home and all that. It's all possible now, but the question is, who's going to see it? How do you market? How do you market it? How do you tell people to go look at it? Uh, so then you come back to the paradigm of having to have some kind of marketing culture, some kind of network, some kind of, you know, uh, social network perhaps to try to disseminate information about a particular thing that you've made. Because otherwise, we're all going to be artists that just sort of make art and then, you know, show it in our living rooms. Right. And so to actually just throw something on Facebook or throw it on YouTube, that's not enough for me. I mean, for some people, it might be wonderful and, and get their rocks off. But And I think it's a starting place for young people who are making images and making films. But it's not enough for me. I'm not interested in... Uh, you know, sort of, sort of quick, uh, spontaneous uh, filmmaking that gets shown, you know, miscellaneously to a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people who I don't know and have any relationship with. I don't get any return from that. I don't know what I'm doing when I do that. So for me, I have an interest in mass communication, uh, and that's, you know, to me, there's value in it if it's done right. Awesome. Well, you know. Um uh, when we come back, uh, another show, we'll, we'll talk about that, that and so many other uh, topics that you and I have to discuss, but, but, but that in and of itself, the documentary filmmaker faces the same type, and maybe even more so, but faces the same type of, of, uh, of uh, thought and uh, planning, I mean, to get their movie uh, produced and released and marketed and out there as a feature filmmaker. I think it's actually harder because in yes. a feature film you can have certain selling points. I have this actress, I have this, you know, wonderful script, I have these product placements, I have investors who are willing to invest in my film, you know, for a box office return. Documentaries don't have those, you know, those elements in fundraising and they rely on grants and foundations and it's extremely hard to get money to make documentaries, which is, you know, frustrating. And ironic because, you know, documentaries, you know, arguably have as much or more value than some stupid car chase movie. But the stupid <laughs> car chase movie could actually get funded at a much higher rate and is easier to make uh, and can actually return on the investment, even though it has zero cultural value, it has zero value. Uh, so I'm not saying all films have to have value, but I'm just saying, right. you know, in addition to entertainment, if we're going to say we like documentaries and they, they're important to our culture – you know, we should find a way to fund them. We should find a way to, you know, to nurture that particular venue in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Well, you have provided so much food for thought, and you have shared so much valuable information, and 
And I really do appreciate it. I want to give you the opportunity again to mention Cafeteria Man, the website. It's playing in festivals. Do you do you happen to know anywhere that it's playing that someone may go see it? Actually, um, it just got finished like last week, so it's it's only being submitted to the major film festivals now, uh, which all happen in the spring. So hopefully, in the spring of 2011, it'll be premiering in various film festivals and things. We hope, uh, and then after that, maybe in the summer, we'll you know. Uh, get a distribution deal and a television deal or something like that. But it's all uh, up in the air at this moment. Sure. But uh, it is uh, cafeteriaman.com mm-hmm. is is the site under construction. And then your site is richardchisholm.com. That's right. And it's R-I-C-H-A-R-D-C-H-I-S-O-L-M.com. That's it. All right, fantastic. Well, you have been great. I sure appreciate this so much. Uh uh, the chat room uh, has, thanks you uh, so much. We've got Killer Show, and thank you, and great show, and, and those kinds of comments, and it certainly has been. We will let the listeners know when you're going to be returning, and uh, and so uh, they uh, need to stay tuned for that information. I okay, Again, thank, pardon me? Great, thanks. It's been fun. Oh, Richard, thank you so much. Have a great day and the rest of the week. All righty. All right, take care. Uh, that was Mr. Richard Chisholm, cinematographer, filmmaker, director of Cafeteria Man, and so much more. If you look at his IMDb credits, he's, he's got a list of shows uh, that he has been involved with and, uh, and just a, a fabulous source of information uh, about the process. And we're going to talk more about cinematography and uh, making uh, documentary film and, and uh, the nuts and bolts aspects of that when Richard returns. Uh, so I want to thank him, and I want to thank you, the readers and listeners of Movie Beat. We've got many more exciting guests coming up in the near future, so be sure to stay tuned, and please keep sharing this website and these interviews with all your friends and your contacts. Before you sign off, before you go away, please go ahead, tweet it, email, phone call somebody, say, hey, you know what, you've got to listen to this live or archived anytime. Uh, when you listen live or archived, make us a friend, follow us, leave comments, uh, where there are places to leave comments or rate and review the podcast uh, because you extend the reach. Uh, you can become a member of Rex Sykes Movie Beat Facebook group or you can join us at the Facebook Friends uh, site uh, for Rex Sykes Movie Beat. And uh, my Twitter address is uh, Rex Sykes Movie BT. That last word is abbreviated as Rex Sykes Movie BT. Uh, by the way, Richard Chisholm is also on Facebook. I, I, I should have mentioned that before uh, we left, and I don't know if he's on Twitter. But everybody, uh, thanks so much. Then my next guest coming up is Daryl Morey. We will reminisce about Massacre at Central High. And then um, so many guests right after that, Sherry Candler and uh, Harry Northup uh, in the coming week. Uh, but stay tuned. And uh, everybody have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects. And until we meet the next time, that's a wrap.